Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. This week, a Stanford alumna whose passion for business catapulted her career from the floor to the C-suite. you got to be an active driver of your career, or you can end up being put in a box, not given the opportunities you deserve. Now she's a top executive in Silicon Valley. There's a view internally that competition is only a click away. Today on Stanford Pathfinders, Alphabet and Google Chief Financial Officer Ruth Perrette. Here's your host, Howard Wolf. When Stanford opened in 1891, it differed from its East Coast peers in numerous ways. Its location on the West Coast, its distinct lack of ivy-covered walls, and educational offerings that focused deeply on utility as opposed to education simply for its own sake. But the one thing that most distinguished Stanford from its ivy peers was the fact that Stanford was co-ed from the day it first opened. Women were a part of Stanford's fabric from day one. In the years since, Stanford has graduated some truly amazing women. From Diane Feinstein and Sandra Day O'Connor to Susan Rice, Sally Ride to Mary Barra, Michelle Wee to Summer Sanders, and Rachel Maddow to Gretchen Carlson, Stanford alumni have contributed much to the world, each in their own way, and in so doing have made their alma mater justifiably proud. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders, Ruth Peratt, continues this impressive legacy. The Chief Financial Officer of Alphabet, parent company that owns Google, Ruth Peratt is one of the most powerful women in Silicon Valley, a fact made even more impressive understanding that she has only been working physically in the Valley for the past two and a half years. After a wonderfully successful career as a Wall Street executive, Ruth has learned what it means to truly be a part of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. She's also learned what it means to be truly googly. Ruth, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. So Ruth, I live and work here in the Silicon Valley. And I know a lot of people who work at Google. And they all talk about this one word, googly. What exactly is that? What does it mean to be googly? I think being googly is one of the most important things you can do when you are at Google. And it really captures a lot of things. Curiosity, super inquisitive, really collaborative, this thirst for exploration. It's really about caring about making a difference and exploring what more one can do to actually have an impact. And it's just this fun-loving but intense environment, if you can put those two together. We're going to come back to Google in a bit, but first I want to start with your past. What was it like to grow up here in Santa Clara Valley before 
it became what we now know as this robust place called Silicon Valley. It was great growing up here. I think I really only fully appreciated that with the passage of time. I was actually born in Manchester in the north of England, and my father had been given a position there after the war, and it was this gift to be able to come to the United States Stopped first at Harvard. Fortunately, my mother did not like the weather at all. And fortunately, he had an opportunity to come join the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. And what was true even back then was just how vibrant this environment was. I saw through my father, he was working with the most extraordinary physicists and technologists. His friends were people who created companies that are now household names. My mom was a psychologist. Esalen down in Big Sur was part of us growing up. Bizarrely, Abe Maslow lived down the street, so I was learning about the hierarchy of needs. As a, as a kid. As a child. And then we had the incredible music out here. Jerry Garcia lived down the street on Alpine Road. And uh, is it true you're a deadhead? I've loved the dead for much of my life, but I've my taste has evolved as I've kind of evolved. But we also had Stevie Nicks was at my high school. Uh, Santana was down in Redwood City. So it was amazing, which I think is why it's so great to be here on Sirius XM and why I was at KZSU. Ah, so so great, this great is a back. part of your past that I did not know about until just recently. You were a DJ for the student radio station at Stanford, KZSU. I was a DJ. It was a great time to do it. We actually had records back then. So you had to kind of merge the music, but we it was great. And did you have a certain genre that you played? At the time, it was, you know, the cool music. It was um, Clapton, Cream, the Doobie Brothers. You're dating yourself, I Ruth. am totally dating myself, <laughs> but those were good times. All right, so you grow up as a kid here in Silicon Valley or Santa Clara Valley, and then you'd literally go just down the road to Stanford. What drew you to Stanford? As a kid, it was a dream to get into Stanford, and I wanted to be a math major, and Stanford was the place to be, and fortunately... The admit rate was a lot higher back then than it is today. So, Considerably yes. so, yes. Considerably so. I was and also so, a sort of product of that high admit rate. And so I was uh, thrilled to get in. It's the right place to be. All right. So you go to Stanford, and then you leave Stanford. You get a master's at the London School of Economics, and then an MBA at the Wharton School, and you set out for Wall Street. What originally attracted you to Wall Street? Back then, mergers and acquisitions was the place to be. It's kind of where the cool kids went, and uh, Morgan Stanley was the place to do it. And I love the analysis that went into it, working with great companies. And so that was the stop. So was it the adrenaline hit of, of actually working in that world? Because the M&A people work all the time. It was really working, as we used to always say, with best-in-class companies and helping them deal with their big strategic questions. It was extraordinary training as you're thinking about doors that open as you learn how to analyze companies, how to analyze strategies. It was uh, it was a great place to be. One of the most important lessons I learned in my career, I actually learned um, one of my first big deals at Morgan Stanley. At the time, what was exciting to work on were the big hostile defenses where you did go sure. around the clock. And there was a hostile defense that I worked on for Gillette. And the CEO at the time said, do whatever you need to do, but you can't touch my R&D budget. And we kept telling, but we need your R&D budget to defend you. And he said, you can't. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I'd rather not be independent than give up my R&D budget. And years later, we learned that that uh, was the sensor razor. Uh. And so to me, learning from the best CEOs you know, in those early days, he made a really important point. If you don't focus on the long run, you're really doing a disservice to your company, to those around you. And it was those kinds of lessons that I learned throughout my career. 
So we're hearing a lot about women in business these days. And here you were, a young associate in the early 1980s on Wall Street. What was it like to be a woman in that environment at that time? It was really tough. There were very few of us. I learned early on that you needed to um, make sure you, you carved your path forward. On one of my first deals, I worked for someone who took credit for all my work, and I realized, you know, that's not the right kind of person. I ended up in my career working for some tremendous men, and I say tremendous men because there were so few women, I didn't have the opportunity to work for women. But one very important message at one point when I was asked to run technology equity capital markets, so part of the trading floor environment, which was the toughest, very male-dominated, very rough. Those were days where you had a whole host of inappropriate things happening on trading floors. And his comment to me was, I will be your senior air cover. I believe you will soar, but I will be there to backstop you if you need it. And that expression is something I've used to this day. And so I think it was tough. I, you know, I'm so grateful to the women who courageously are speaking up today. Fortunately, I wasn't subjected to that, but it was still very tough. And to me, the most important thing is you have to be in a place where you have the right culture and you can speak up. There were plenty of times I spoke up and said, this is inappropriate. This shouldn't happen. And my bosses backstopped me. Find somebody who will be your senior air cover, find somebody who will take risks on you. Those are the things that made the difference for me. And fortunately, that guy who took credit for my work actually gave me a gift because I realized you got to be an active driver of your career or you can end up being put in a box, not given the opportunities you deserve. Find those people who are going to actually take a risk on you, and that makes all the difference. Well, you clearly figured out a way to navigate this. Before becoming the CFO of Morgan Stanley, you were Morgan Stanley's co-head of technology investment banking, global head of the financial institutions group, and chairman of the investment banking group. And you were in these last two positions when the financial crisis of 2008 struck. Having lived and worked through that crisis, what lessons did you take away that were relevant for your new life and why? Yeah, so there were a host of lessons. I'm so grateful to have been able to play that role during the financial crisis. But living it was probably one of the most profound experiences. And to this day, I'm grateful for Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke because the economy really was on the brink. It almost all went down, and it would have been substantially worse, but for the leadership that they showed showed in that period. And so um, we should be eternally grateful to them. I think there were a number of really important lessons. The most important is that every company, every industry needs to understand their greatest source of vulnerability and protect against it. During the financial crisis, banks needed liquidity. Liquidity was oxygen, and without it, you choked. And that's what happened to banks individually. That's what happened to the financial system collectively. And when you're in crisis, it's too late to protect against that vulnerability. So identify it early, protect against it. The other is something that um, Hank Paulson, Secretary of the Treasury at the time, said to me. He said, you have to have the will and the means by which he meant the political will and the financial means. And too often, by the time you have the will, you no longer have the means. The main message there is when you have to make a call, make it early or you're dissipating resources that you need. And I think the third really important one is build systems ahead of when you need them. AIG 
almost blew up the global economy without even having visibility about the magnitude of risk at the company. They, they had no idea. They didn't have the analytical tools. It was something going on overseas. It was not clear in New York. And it was terrifying to see how many errors can be made when you don't have that visibility. The metaphor I like to use is that it's like driving a car with mud on the windshield. You can't do it, but when you clear away the mud, you can go even faster. So this is about continuing to have the agility, velocity we all need, but with visibility. I can't underestimate or understate the importance of investing early. So a little over two years ago, you made this huge transition to Silicon Valley after 28 years on Wall Street. Why leave Wall Street after being at what most would consider the pinnacle of success? I mean, you were the CFO of Morgan Stanley, and you left that role to come here and work for Google, now Alphabet, as their CFO. That must have been a huge decision. I had been CFO for a number of years. I came in right after the financial crisis. As we got through that period, you know, the question was, what next? And I ended up out here actually during a Stanford board meeting. You serve on the board of trustees. Serve on the board. And I was out here for one of those meetings and went to see the legendary Bill Campbell, who was really the coach to so many of us out here. Sadly, he passed away about a year and a half ago. But He was a Silicon Valley icon, a gentleman who had started off his career as the football coach at Columbia University and then went on to become a Silicon Valley leader and then in the sort of sunset of his career, he became this sort of mentor coach of leaders of companies here in Silicon Valley, including Sergey and Larry at Google. Absolutely. He was somebody we turned to because he just had this clarity of thought and insight. He cared immensely about people. He made us each better. We miss him every week, but he gave us the coaching and the guidance and the wisdom. And at the time we're sitting in his living room and he was asking what next and I said, I'm coming to you for ideas. But the one thing I know is I don't want to be a CFO again. I love my role. And okay, I'm not so you did leave. not want to be a CFO any longer. My view was I had a great position, great partnership with the CEO, so I wouldn't be leaving Morgan Stanley to be a CFO. Because that would be lateral, and why would you do that? Why would I do that? But I wanted to understand how to think about next chapter of my life. And for a couple of hours, we sat in his living room, and we spoke, and he asked a whole host of questions. He kept coming back to the not CFO, and I said, yep, got clarity on one thing, not CFO. And at the end of two hours, he said, well, I have the perfect idea. You should be the CFO of Google. Now, stop right there. Did he come into that conversation with that as his agenda, or did that develop over the course of your conversation? Because this is serendipitous, seemingly. I think that it was serendipitous that I wanted to go out and see him, and he had an idea cooking. But he did a very good job playing me. And at the end of the two hours when he said, CFO of Google, I immediately said, well, of course, ignore everything I ever said, of course. Literally like that. Like that. So I then said, I'm going back to the Stanford campus to go back to my board meeting. And I got a call right away from him. He said, can you get over to Larry's house? You need to sit down with him for a couple hours. So we did. And This is Larry Page, Page, the CEO of, of Google. And we had a great conversation. I'm thrilled to be here. Had you met him before? We actually had a fabulous Stanford board meeting that was held up at Google probably a Oh, yes, couple I of years prior this. to that. It was fantastic. Again, just seeing... Because John Hennessy, the president of Stanford, when you joined the Stanford Board of Trustees, was a longtime member of the Google Board of Trustees. And still is. Board of directors, He's the lead director for us, and he's as extraordinary as lead director as he was as president of Stanford. But it, the other thing that's beautiful that I see all the time, it's very much the ethos on the Google campus is like the Stanford campus. It's this incredible 
curiosity, this burst of energy. It's serendipity. It's an open campus where people are constantly coming together to brainstorm. And so there's a real similarity between the two, in my view. But one hears the food's better at Google's campus. The food's pretty good. Food's very good. But the optimism level is the same. It's all about the future. It's all about what can be. It very much is. And one of the things I really look to quite a bit is the wisdom of our founders, Larry and Sergey, in really continuing to nurture this environment in which people continue to push the frontier. So we, we've written and talked about it quite a bit, but if you think about some of the things at Google from the earliest days, like what's called 20% time, if you yes. have a great idea, you're really encouraged to go explore it. And then they- Even if it has nothing to do with your current job. Exactly. But that's where Gmail came from and a whole host of other things. And so the idea that they want to continue to tap into the creativity of Googlers, going back to your first question, the curiosity and the brilliance of them to continue to explore new ideas, don't keep people limited, has been, I think, a really important part of the culture and the magic of innovation. This is Stanford Pathfinders. More with Alphabet Inc. and Google Chief Financial Officer Ruth Peratt coming up. This is Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight 121. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Alphabet and Google Chief Financial Officer Ruth Peratt. Share with us some of your only at Google moments, things that could only happen there. And what do you think Wall Street can learn from tech? I think one of the things that's impressed me the most is a tradition at Google called TGIF, which actually is on Thursday. It's an all-company Okay, so that's meeting. confusing right off the it's, bat. Well, we try and keep people a little out of their comfort zone. So TGIF <laughs> is on Thursday. And each week, uh, Larry and Sergey preside over an all-company meeting. What's, Both in person and virtually all over the world? Yes. And what's extraordinary about it is first there's a product review or an update on something that's gone on in the company. So we're all part of one team and and, um, aware of progress throughout the company. And then here's the only at Google, the magic that I I love so much. People are encouraged to ask questions and, and ask any question, and they do. And there are questions that are posted that the company can vote on and The questions then get raised to be answered by whoever can answer it, and they're ranked based on the number of votes from the company. So I compared it to my days working Stanley. We'd get a bunch of questions. You didn't really know what was the most important to employees. You sort of sorted them based on what you thought was interesting or you could answer. You can't do that. If there are questions that are of importance to the company, they're put to the Those bubble up to the top. They bubble right up. And what's so valuable and the lesson, I think, for every industry, every company, is the level of transparency and insight you get into what's important to the company, what are emerging issues, what are emerging opportunities is extraordinary. And I am firmly of the view that if Wall Street had that back during the financial crisis, I'm hoping and I believe somebody would have surfaced, why are these things happening? Why is this trade on? Why is this hedge structured in this way? I think it's a really valuable tool. It's challenging because every question is asked. So you're definitely put on the spot. But I think it's such a valuable and healthy tool for everyone. So using the metaphor of an auto assembly plant, it's the person that's putting on the fender that understands what the problems are are with that fender and the way it was manufactured. If that can get bubble up to the top, then you can change things. The people who are on the front line at Google are the ones that are bubbling up these questions so that you, the senior leadership team, can respond. 
Uh, you're absolutely right. But speaking of fenders, yes. the other only Google moment that oh. I love is getting in our self-driving cars. How scary is that? It's fantastic. That's the opposite of scary. It's far from scary. In fact, the magic of self-driving cars is, one, it improves safety, and two, it enables us to transform cities. And when it comes to safety, what you actually realize once you get in a car is the incredible benefit you get from the sensors all over the car. So as an example, in one of my first rides, we had two safety drivers who sit in the front seat. They're required to do that under regulations. We're going through our testing process. And I asked the drivers, what's the most extraordinary thing you've seen as you've been testing the cars? And they said, through the sensors, you can see how irresponsible pedestrians, cyclists, and drivers really are. What we're addressing with self-driving cars is safety having the sensors that are actually able to monitor real time in a way that humans often don't. Humans get distracted. And so I feel it's much safer. Well, the first time I told my wife I wanted to get a self-driving car, she said that was unsafe. The older I get and the more I drive with her, the more she thinks I should get a self-driving car. I I know exactly about what you speak. We should all be in self-driving cars. The other thing I love about self-driving cars, every time we're at a board meeting talking about building another building and the question is asked how many parking spots, you don't need the parking spots. I'd rather have all of that money going into more space for labs or ultimate frisbee or basketball (laughs) or fill in your favorite. Okay, three months after you arrive at Google, Alphabet was announced. What was that all about? It confused all of us who weren't a part of the Google world when you said we're renaming the company Alphabet. Has that worked? And, And what are the elements of the change of the structure that are relevant for other industries? We think it's worked really well because the goal for Alphabet was to enable us to have focus within Google while continuing to push the frontier. And I mentioned 20% time. When I reflect on it, 20% time was sort of the first iteration of getting Googlers to push the frontier, to continue to explore new areas. And the second iteration of it was creating what we called X. Some people refer to as the moonshot factory. You know, out of that came... Waymo, our self-driving cars, it came our life sciences business fairly, Um, it came a whole host of different efforts. But again, that came out of this notion of let's be deliberate about innovation. Let's create an area where people can push the frontier and explore. So we have focus within Google while we're looking at developing, exploring, working with a set of other companies across another set of industries. So Google is known within the Valley as being phenomenally adept at innovation. So how do you build that culture of innovation? Is it just pick the right people and let them flourish? Or are there other things that one does to create that culture? Because innovation is the thing that our country needs most to drive our economy. But it seems to be really, really hard for most companies to implement. I think there are a number of elements to it. One is we do have an extraordinary team that is working on an extraordinary technology platform that really enables you to have great reach and have a big impact. But then it really does go to how do we try to run the company and giving people this space to explore. There's a real clear message, which is continue to push the frontier. There's a view internally that competition is only a click away. We know that. We use that expression. Competition is only a click away. You're worried about that man or woman in the garage that's coming up with that new idea that's just going to take you on. There are plenty of wonderful entrepreneurs all around the globe, and we see competition everywhere. And notwithstanding our size, there's what I think one of the many really important characteristics is there's a real humility within 
Google. People realize the extraordinary creativity around the globe. And so we're constantly looking for the, the next opportunity that how do you add more value to users or to advertisers? How do we create new experiences? That's what motivates people. And our structure very much says continue to push the frontier. And then we do things around it to support and nurture Googlers and the work we're doing, things like the open campus, meals together where people bump into one another, encouraged to stay on campus, to brainstorm together. So there's an entire environment that's built around, again, creating support for exploration. So anywhere you go in Palo Alto these days, whatever restaurant you eat at, whatever gym you work out at, the buzz you hear in the background is machine learning, artificial intelligence, data science. It's the future. And then it breaks into two camps. There's one group that says it is going to be the panacea for all our ills. And the other group says it is the darkest of dark clouds hanging over us. Talk to us about machine learning at Google. Talk to us about what you all think is the opportunity or downside and what other companies can learn from this. So machine learning, the one thing I think is important for people to know is that you're already living with it in so many products and so many of the best experiences that you're having. When you do voice search, it's machine learning. When you look at natural language translation or foreign language translation, you're talking about machine learning. When you take a photo um, and the, or your ability to get on your phone and search for hugs, that's machine learning. When you're watching a video and then another one comes up, the recommendations engine is machine learning. We talked about self-driving cars, the ability to save lives. There are over a million people die on the road every year. The ability to save lives through self-driving cars, that's machine learning. And probably one of the most exciting new areas, in my view, is life sciences. What we're looking at is the ability to have better reads of lab tests, uh, more consistent reads. They're saying that computers can do a better job in many cases reading x-rays than can radiologists. Exactly. Now. And whether it's drug discovery or patient management, the ability, again, to use large data sets is actually supplying leverage to doctors and technicians. It's a tool. It enables us to each do our job But the better. fear is the tool takes over its master after a certain period of time, and that the computers become too powerful, too all-knowing, learn too much, and become our downfall. Do you worry about that? If you look throughout history, it's always been easier to see the jobs that, or tasks that are being displaced by technology and not see the roles, jobs, tasks, and even industries that are being created. And so what we're looking at are the opportunities to actually continue to grow industries, jobs, tasks. And I think much of the work suggests that certain tasks may be replaced, but new ones will be created. It's just a transition of the nature of the work that people will do. And transitions are important. They're really important to focus on. They can be disruptive and they can be disconcerting for certain people who are being disrupted. One of the areas where we're spending quite a bit of time is digital skills training. I was recently actually back in my hometown in Manchester and helped open a digital garage where we're training people on digital skills. 90% of jobs in the UK today require some form of digital skills. 75% of companies say that they can't find, find the, people the people who have those skills. And so what we're looking to do at Google is go across the United States, across 
the globe to help with training and then hold ourselves accountable. We're setting targets for how many people either get new jobs or have the ability to grow within their jobs. So these transitions are important and we're very committed to playing our part as I think every company and every educational institution can to prepare people for the work of the future. So, Ruth, I think we've come to the end of our time. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for joining us on Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the Sirius XM app. 